Good morning again. I'm Todd, and I'm the lead pastor at Glad Tidings Church. And I would like you to stand with us as we talk about the final installment on the secret to happiness. From the book of Malachi this time, not Hebrews. Verses 3 down to verse 13. And this is what it says. I'm reading green. There it is. Thank you, sir. And uh, you're reading black. And this is what it says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, or Israel, are not consumed. For the days, from the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes. Have not kept them. Have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you, and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Well done. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that he will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a, a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said... It is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for the beautiful, generous, gracious, extravagant, expression of love and grace to us in Jesus Christ. And thank you for the Spirit. And we ask today that you would enable us as we enter into this ministry of Jesus. Lord, to each other and to this congregation, to all the people online, and ultimately and possibly to the ends of the earth. Lord, we ask that you would give us a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to understand, and then as we leave this place, to go out into our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our places of education and our places of recreation. And Lord, that we would live out the truth of your gospel as faithful, obedient disciples of the living Christ. And in his name, we ask these mercies. Amen. Why don't you be seated? A married couple was having some problems. And uh, they were experiencing what is known as the silent treatment. <clears throat> and the husband uh, had to be up at 5 a.m. in the morning to catch a flight uh, for a business trip that he needed to take. So not wanting to um, break the silence and lose the argument, he decided he'd write a note to his wife and the night before and put it in a place where she could see it and read it before she went to bed and the note read can you please wake me at 5 a.m. he went off to sleep and to his chagrin he woke up at 7 a.m. furious and he jumps out of bed to 
ask his wife why she didn't wake him up, and he notices a note beside the bed. And the note read, it's 5 a.m., please wake up. Now, if you're married, you know what it's like to have one of these, and one of these is a lover's quarrel. The book of Malachi is a lover's quarrel between God, who has been jilted, and the people whom he loves, his bride, the people of Israel, and by extension, us. Now, if you got your Bibles, I want you to look, turn to the, or you got a device, turn to chapter 1 of Malachi, and in the next 25 minutes, I am going to preach the entire book of Malachi, 1,797 words. There are seven confrontations in Malachi between God and his bride, Israel, and his church, us, by extension. Confrontation number one, for doubting God's love. In Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, it says this. God is speaking, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, we say, how have you loved us? And so when the prophet Malachi says God loves you, the people say, well, look at all the bad things that happened to us. If God really loved us, these things would never happen. And the people are saying, prove to us that you love us. And nothing is more damaging to interpersonal relationships than the incessant need by one partner to, for the other to prove their affection and their care. This constant, insatiable need for proof of love is not only annoying at best, but at worst, it's evidence of them having lost awareness that all good things come from God. Confrontation number two is for indifference, for regarding their or our relationship with God. In verse 6 of Malachi chapter 1, it says, A son honors his father, God is speaking, And a servant is master, if then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you and to me, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? Now, let me ask you a question. Don't say it out loud, but just in your own mind. Which is less or more painful, to eat alone and be alone, or to eat with someone who across the table from you ignores you and is indifferent toward you and has tuned you out? Which is less or more painful, eating alone and being alone, or eating And the person across the table from you has tuned you out, ignores you, is indifferent to your presence. Now, Esther Perel says, when our lamentations fall on deaf ears, 
The loneliness, she says, and I put in quotes in brackets, the pain, is worse than being alone. You see, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. And this is the overarching theme of Malachi. That the people of God are indifferent to God. I don't care what God's word says. I'm going to do this anyway. I don't care what God says. I'm going to have my own way. We will never be happy while we are indifferent to God's word. That's the fourth secret of happiness. You and I will never be completely happy while we are indifferent to God's word. Confrontation number three for going through the motions of worship. God says in chapter 1, verse 7, by polluting, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, we say, how have we polluted you? And God says, by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. And so the people of Israel are coming to worship. They are coming to God's house with a flippant attitude, with a half hearted attitude. Oh well. I've seen it all before. There's nothing new. And what's interesting is not only were they coming flippantly to God's house and to worship, when they came to the altar, to the sacrifice, to the table, they weren't giving their best to God. They were giving their worst the weakest. Well, you know, this lamb has got a broken leg, so you know what? We'll offer this to God. What's given to God is not what's right, but what's left over. And sometimes there's nothing left over. It's not bringing our best. And God says, but I'll still be praised. And we have that line in verse 11 where he says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name shall be great among the nation. And if you don't declare my greatness, somebody and something else will. And then comes the fourth confrontation. The fourth confrontation is for questioning that God is just. And God says in Malachi 2.17, we're in chapter 2 now, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, we say, people say, how have we wearied you? Or how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, where is the God of justice? The people, God's people, have become cynical. They compare and complain about the wicked that they have so much more than they do in contrast to the righteous who have so little. And what they're doing here is they are, they are accusing God of being capricious, of being arbitrary, of being unpredictable, of being unreliable. And that then brings us to the three final confrontations. 
Which really brings us to our text and brings us to our topic of tithing and giving. And so the fifth confrontation is for drifting away. A word that I can't remember the last time I have used it or the last time I have heard it used is a word called backsliding, of our relationship with God becoming cold. The flame that once burned bright is just a flicker. And God speaks and he says, For I am the Lord and I do not change. Therefore you, O children of Israel or of Jacob, are not consumed. For the days of your, from the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God is saying this, look. We have this love relationship. Somebody in this relationship has changed, has moved. And it isn't me because God says, I can't change, I don't change, I won't change. Anybody over 40 will remember when we used to have bench seats in vehicles. Remember that? Anybody under 40 uh, in our in pickups and cars, there was just one front seat. It was called a bench seat. And when I thought about this statement by God, I thought about this friend of mine who had a Ford pickup. And when he was dating his girlfriend, now his wife, they would sit so close together in the pickup that it looked like Tony had two heads. And that reminded me of this corny story that I had heard once about an older couple who were going down the road in their vehicle with bench seats. And the wife, all of a sudden, out of the blue says, look at us, look at us. And the guy, her, his, uh, her husband behind the wheel is like, what, 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 what? And he's looking around and looking around and freaked out. She says, look at us. There was one time in our lives where we always sat so close together in the car. And look at us. I'm way over here, and you're way over there. And he looks at her and says, which one of us moved? <laughs> I know it's corny. But this is exactly what God is saying. Something in this relationship, somebody in this relationship has changed, has moved. And it's not me, because I don't change. And the immediate next response is, and God says, it's a good thing that I do not change. Because if I changed, you would be consumed. Now, in any quarrel, especially a lover's quarrel, in order for there to be reconciliation, someone has to give in. Someone has to initiate the process. And here is God initiating the reconciliation process. 
God says these very tender words in verse 7. Return to me, and I will return to you. Now, even with these tender words of God, it still doesn't melt the ice and doesn't soften the people's heart. And there's some sandbagging that goes on. Sort of a prove-it attitude. And the people say, but you say, how shall we return? And isn't that always the issue? In the marriage class, which will start up next week, the marriage class downstairs in the Lori Auditorium, the Lord Chapel is about the, when the issue isn't the issue. And what's interesting about Malachi is that the issue is not really money. The issue is not really tithing. The issue is that the people have lost out with God. And their relationship has become cold, and they have moved. They have changed. But here comes the issue. Here comes the sixth confrontation. And the sixth confrontation is for robbery. And God says, or the prophet says, Will man rob God, yet you are robbing me? But you say, how are we robbing you? And then God answers back with this clear statement. In tithes and in contributions. In tithes and in contributions. Now, we know that, don't we? We we know why, right? Most couples quarrel over money. They quarrel, we quarrel over other things, of course, but one of the things we know from all the studies and we know from life and our marriages and what have you, that there are times that we all quarrel over money. One partner is a spender, the other partner is a saver. When my wife is smiling, leave it alone. One thinks that money is for saving, and the other thinks that money is for spending. And usually, when it comes to spending and money, it's about values. And oftentimes, what I find valuable, and where we should spend our money, is not always where Ruth thinks we should spend our money. And what she thinks is valuable sometimes is not all that valuable to me. For example, she might say, well, you know what we should do? We should get a really, some new furniture and some stuff for the house. And I think, are you crazy? There's no value in that. But I say, you know what? I think we should buy a new toy or a new tool. And she says, are you insane? Because it's about value. But much more serious is the designation of what belongs to God. And remember last week we said this, that the tithe belongs to God. We are not giving our tithe, we are returning our tithe. And we will never ever be completely happy as long as what belongs to God is still in our pockets. Now, God is accusing his people of robbing him. And these are hard words. Like, these are hard words. And the people say, well, how have we robbed you? 
And then God makes a statement that makes them and us sit up and pay attention. He says this, You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And so we have this attitude that, you know what, I don't believe tithing is biblical. I don't think it's for today. And if you got that objection, you need to listen to last week's sermon. I'm not going to go into it. But we do not tithe, and we will not tithe. So how's that going? God says in Haggai, the prophet, he says this. Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you are never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but you, no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. So if we're wondering why things are not going the way we anticipated. We might consider our ways. If we wonder why things seem to go sideways more often than not, we might consider our ways. If we find that at the end of the month there is more month left over than there is paycheck, we might consider our ways. If we find that we can never ever get ahead, we might consider our ways. If we find ourselves more unhappy and less content, we might consider our ways. If we find ourselves more agitated and arguing and fighting more with the people we love and with the people who love us, then we might consider our ways. If we find ourselves becoming increasingly frustrated and worried and lacking peace, we might consider our ways. If we find that we are under a, an increased amount of stress and emotional strain, we might consider our ways. If we feel like something is missing, we might consider our ways. I have concluded, and I've thought about this, and there are probably more, but I have concluded that there are four reasons why negative things happen, bad things happen to us. Four reasons. The first one is this. It's just the natural realities of life. We live in a broken world, and not everything has a reason. God will use it for a person, but not everything has a reason. We live in a broken world, and sometimes things happen because we live in a broken world. For example, you all know, and I hope she's not listening, that we have a Down syndrome daughter. The only reason, the only thing that we can attribute to why we have a Down syndrome daughter is because we live in a broken world. There's no other reason. 
A secondly reason is that sometimes we experience bad things because of the consequence of the actions of other people. And particularly as parents with adult children, we don't have to live with the guilt of our adult children's choices. But we do have to live with the consequences. The third reason is because God tests us like Job. And i got to tell you, that's a small percentage in our lives where God tests us like Job. And when most of us are never tested to that extreme. But God does test us from time to time. And the last way in which bad things happen is disobedience and unfaithfulness. It is impossible for you and me to have peace and to be happy and still be disobedient. And the other thing you should probably know is that when we are disobedient and unfaithful, God says, I'm going to take my hand off this area of your life. And the enemy comes in. Now, those are the only four reasons. Now, so my question, when we consider our ways and the list of things that I gave you, which one is it? I can't answer that question for you. I can only answer that question for me. But here's another thing. You are cursed with a curse for robbing me, the whole nation of you. Now, here's something very interesting that you won't know in the text unless you study it. God uses a word for the people of Israel that he really doesn't use in many other places. He calls the people of Israel goi. It's goi, Hebrew. Goi is a word that God, that is used in the Old Testament for foreign nations. People who don't belong to God are called goi. And God says to his people, Israel, you act so much like the people who do not belong to me that I have no choice but to call you by their name. But God being God, he doesn't just bring a grievance. He offers a solution. And one of the great things about God is that he's a God of second chances. There's always a road home. There's always a new beginning. There's always a fresh start. And God's solution is twofold. He says he gives us an amount and a designation. He says in verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, the amount is the full tithe. 10% of everything I earn belongs to God. Now, the other thing, it's not just about percentages. God doesn't just look at percentages. God looks at our hearts. And God not only wants us to return to him what belongs to us, but he wants us to be happy about it. He wants us to be generous. And the designation is into the storehouse. And we said last week that the 21st century equivalent of the storehouse in the Old Testament is the church, the local church, particularly Glad Tidings Church. If you call Glad Tidings Church home, this is your local storehouse. That's the 21st equivalent. And then comes, and then comes, one of the most beautiful and promises in the entire Bible. It is so, it is stunning. 
what God says next. It is absolutely overwhelming. It is one of the greatest promises and one of the most beautiful texts in the whole Bible. And God says, and therefore, or thereby put me to the test. Now, this in Malachi is the only place where God says, test me. Isn't that ironic? God says, test me. And God says, if you test me, I will show myself faithful and I will prove my love in two ways. Number one, I will add blessing. I will open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need. You see, God knows how to bless us in ways that we haven't even thought about. My mom used to have a great line. She said, God knows how to make a dollar out of 50 cents. And I think my mother proved it a bunch of times. And then the second thing that God says, not only will I add blessing, not will I pour it down so that there is absolutely no, not only will I open the windows of heaven, but I will take away harm. I will rebuke the devourer for you. Now, you know what God's doing here, right? You know what this text is doing here, right? God is calling us out. God is saying, you're a chicken to test me. You're a chicken. You haven't got what it takes to test me. God's calling us out. God is saying, do you, do I, do we have what it takes to test God in this area? He's calling us out. And then we come to the final confrontation, the seventh one for false accusation. Chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, it says, your words... God is speaking, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, we say, the people say, how have we spoken against you? And God says, you have said, it is vain to serve the Lord. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you this text from Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 19, says these words, oh, how abundant is God's goodness. His abundant goodness for us is so magnificent that he's actually stored it up. We were reading this morning from Psalm 35. Psalm 35, 25 says these words, that God delights in the welfare of his people. God delights in your well-being. God delights in your welfare. God delights in his goodness toward you. God delights in your welfare. God delights in making it go well for us. So this week, I was back in Psalm 31. And I noticed a line I had not noticed before. And it's verse 14 and 15. 
Verse 14 and 15 says, But I trust you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Now, you know what that means? This is what it means. It means that God is present in our circumstance and situation. Oh, I'm not talking about in our times as in globally or geopolitically. God is there too. But no, no. Listen to what it says. My times. In my circumstance and situation. In my life. In my marriage. In my family. In my health. In your situation. Your circumstances. Your time, my time, our times are in his hand. Isn't that amazing? That God is present. Peterson, Eugene Peterson said this, that God enters into the actual living with us, guiding and instructing And accompanying us as we live by faith. He corrects our mistakes. He guides our choices. He forgives our lapses. And he encourages our efforts. Now let me finish with this. I discovered something this week that I didn't even, I didn't know before. I was reading in the Proverbs... In Proverbs chapter, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30, it says this. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing, rejoicing before him always. It's talking about wisdom personified in the Holy Spirit. Now follow me. What I didn't know was this. 200 years before Jesus, before the birth of Jesus, the Greek translators of the Hebrew Bible. They translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek called the Septuagint, 200 years before Jesus. And when they came to this verse, when they came to these words, master workman, they translated it the harmonizer. The harmonizer. Now, we all know what harmony is, right? There's a piano in the house, and sometimes a child will sit and bang its keys. It's not music, it's noise, right? But then another person will sit at that same keyboard and using the exact same keys provides delight for everyone in the room. The same notes are struck. The same keys are played. But with harmony. And that brought me to this story. You've probably heard it. There was a young mom who decided that she was going to bring her little boy to a Pederewski piano recital. Pederewski is one of the great, greatest concert piano pianists of all time. 
When they were, her and her son were coming into the hall, they got their seats, and she noticed a friend on the other side of the hall, and she went over to speak to the friend. Well, the little boy thought that this was a great time to sort of explore the wonders of the concert hall, which he did, and he came to a sign that said, no admittance. Well, that's like saying wet paint. You got to touch it. He goes in. The house lights dim, which means the concert is about to start. The drapes open. And the light goes on this magnificent Steinway piano. And to the horror of the mom. Her little boy is sitting on the bench and with two fingers plunking out, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And if that wasn't enough, Pedereski, at the same time, walks out on the stage and the place goes quiet. And the little boy doesn't know he's there. And Pedereski leans down and says to the little boy, don't stop. Keep playing. And he reached around the little boy and he started to fill in. And somebody brilliantly made a video of it. From the foundation for a better life. And if you tithe, you'll have a better life. <clears throat> you know what's interesting? This is a true story, by the way. What's interesting? The audience never, ever remembered any other piece that was played that evening. Except for Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Between a master pianist, and a young novice. And that's what God does in our lives. He is the great harmonizer. He takes our lives pounding out with two fingers, twinkle, twinkle, little star. And he comes around us, and he fills in and makes up the difference.
Brothers and sisters, God knows how to bless us in ways that we have never considered. Father, in the name of Jesus, come Holy Spirit and continue to work in our hearts and lives as we come to the table. Help us to reflect around where we are to consider our ways. To come to this table not to give the weak or the worse, but to give what is right and what is best, not what is left over. You gave your best. And when it was over, there was nothing left over because the Son of Righteousness had fallen. But you brought him out of the grave and you sent the Spirit. And you came as the great harmonizer to encircle our lives, to embrace our lives. And so, Father, today as we come to this table, speak to us, challenge us, stir us, pursue us, convict us, that we may become the people of God that you desire us to be molded and shaped into the beautiful, glorious image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.